Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 14. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the, all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through this word, and that you would encourage us, Lord, to be a people who have beautiful feet. I pray that I would speak your word, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts and shape us according to your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I am going to preach this morning on these verses, and I'm going to title my sermon, Beautiful Feet. Everybody take a look at your feet. Are they beautiful? The world-famous violinist, Fritz Kreisler, and, uh, he was born in 1875, and throughout his lifetime, he made a fortune through uh, uh, many concerts and appearances. Uh, however, as he grew older, all of his fortune was gone as he gave most of his fortunes generously. He gave them away. He one day was on a trip and he walked into a shop and he found the most exquisite violin. And he didn't have the money for it. And so he went out and he earned the money that he would need to buy this violin and came back to the shop. And to his dismay, the violin had already been purchased by a collector. He found out where the collector lived and so... Mr. Chrysler went to the, the collector's house and offered to buy the violin from the man. And the man said, I'm sorry, you know, it's, it's become a, uh, a treasure to me. This is a piece that I really love, and I'm not going to sell it. And so just before he left, Mr. Chrysler asked the man if he would mind allowing Mr. Chrysler to just play the violin one time. And so he obliged, and he handed the violin to Mr. Chrysler, and the virtuoso played a song more beautiful than the man had ever heard in his life. And when he was finished, the collector looked at Mr. Chrysler and said, I have no right to keep that to myself. Mr. Chrysler, take it into the world and let the people hear it. Don't you realize, church, that you have been given a beautiful song that we are to take into the world so that the people might hear? And this, this song is, is not 
the song of your own abilities. It's not the song of your own skills. It's not the song of how beautiful you are. This is the eternal song of Jesus Christ. It's a song that, that, that we still have when our abilities begin to fade. It's our, a song that we still have to sing when our beauty fades. It's a song that we still have the, the longer we're with Jesus, the older we get, the more mature we get in Christ, the better we sing this song. It's the song of Christ who was born so that we might not die. Who came into this world, God in the flesh, the incarnate God who lived among us. And He lived a life of complete perfection before God. Wrap your mind around that. Never for a moment in all of his life did he use any thought or any part of his body in a dishonoring way to God. He was faithful every second of every day. To get a glimpse into how amazing that is, I just want you to, to do an experiment today at some point. Take one hour and try one hour to have every thought and every action and every bit of your being aligned with God. To not sin for one hour. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless his entire life. And then he dies on the cross. And this perfect sacrifice is sacrificed for us on our behalf. And he is the only one because of his perfection to be able to take the sins of us. And he dies in our place. And three days later, He rises from the dead. And He commissions the church to go and spread the good news and tell all people that all who turn from their sins and trust in Him will have salvation, forgiveness of sins. Now and one day will live with God for all of eternity, separated from even the presence of sin. What I just described to you there is what we call the gospel message. And so throughout my sermon today, as I say the words, the gospel, I want you to know what I'm talking about. It's that message, which I've summarized for you just now. We are called as the people of God to take the gospel to the world around us. And if I could boil down Romans 10, 14-21 into one phrase, it is this. Since God is inviting and commanding and pleading with the lost to believe, let us take them the gospel. I want to motivate you this morning on your mission. Because I know that we have a problem you know, many of you want to see the lost saved, but we are too often shy on the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a Christian talk about their favorite team with such passion and fervor and confidence, and then we turn that conversation to the gospel. You know, tell, tell me how you're saved. Tell me how somebody's saved, and they become sheepish and small and hesitant. Why? Is it because it sounds like foolishness to the world? Oh, indeed it does, church. And for all of these reasons and more, we often get sheepish on the gospel. We are hesitant to tell the gospel to those, to those that are around us and even to one another. And then as a result, if we remain shy, we not only 
miss an opportunity to share the gospel with the lost. But we present an optional Christ who is an optional Savior who you sort of believe in. But church, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only Savior that you must believe in. And so this morning, I just want to I want to stand with you in the gospel with what I know that you, if you're a Christian, what you believe, and then I want to motivate all of us to go from this place and to have beautiful feet. So how how might we be motivated? Well, looking at this passage, skipping back to verse 11 in chapter 10, we're told that everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. And that everyone literally means everyone. In the very next verse, in verse 12, he says there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. I'm not just talking about Jews. I'm not just talking about Gentiles. I'm talking about everybody. Everybody who believes in him will not be put to shame. He reiterates it in verse 13 as he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now by the time we hit then verse 14, when he says, how will they call on him? Who is the they? Well, the they isn't just the Jews or just the Gentiles, but it's everybody. It's the whole world. He says, how will they, all these people who are invited to believe, how will they call on him? Like how, how, how at some point are they going to fall on their knees in repentance and call out for a Savior if they haven't believed? You see, how, how, in our day and age, how will the Muslims in North Africa call on him in whom they haven't believed? Uh, how, how will the unreached people groups in the mountains of the Philippines call on him in whom they haven't believed? How will the atheists, secularists in Grenoble, France, call on him in whom they haven't believed? You see, Paul is presenting a problem. If everybody can be saved through calling on him, we've got a problem because not everybody believes. And the problem continues. How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if somebody doesn't preach to them? And how are they going to preach to them if they are not sent? You see, what he's saying is this, is, Calling on God for salvation depends on believing. Believing depends on hearing. Hearing depends on somebody speaking. And somebody speaking depends on somebody being sent. In other words, we could turn this around in a positive way. How is it that somebody receives the gospel? Well, they are sent, somebody is sent, commissioned. That person speaks, that listener hears, and then that listener, through the work of the Holy Spirit, awakening them to faith, calls on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are saved. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear 
without somebody preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? First point I want to give you is this. The gospel is to be preached. Somebody say amen. amen. The gospel is to be preached. I read a story of a family in the Sahara Desert in the early 1980s. By December, the granaries begin to recede. It's been long since they've had a harvest, long since they've had a rainfall, and by February, they're down to one meal per day. Meals continue to shrink during March, and by the end of March, most people, uh, if not everyone, are literally eating one morning meal, and the children begin to get sick. April most haunts their memories. During the month of April, the babies are crying in the middle of night, the night because they're hungry. And the entire family has been reduced to an evening cup of gruel. A six-year-old finds a bag of grain in the hut where they keep the goats. The goats. And he comes running into the house with the grain and he says, Daddy, we have grain. We can eat. Motionless, the father looks at the six-year-old and he says, son, we can't eat that. That's next year's seed grain. We're waiting for the rain and then we must use it. The starvation continues and finally, the rain comes in May. And the young boy watches his father do the most unimaginable thing possible. He takes the last bag of grain, and he spreads it on the field in tears. You see, in Psalm 126, we're told those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying bundles of grain back home. Therefore, how beautiful are the feet of those who sow the seed of the gospel. You see, sowing is done often in pain. It's done in suffering. It's done in tears. But the sowing of the seeds of the gospel is God's method of producing a great harvest for the Son. So in verse 15, Paul then goes on to quote Isaiah 52, verse 7. He says, as it is written, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, which is another term for the gospel. For Isaiah, believing is initiated by hearing. And so he's saying the people who spread the hearing are People who have beautiful feet like gazelles running across the mountains. Meaning, nobody ever at any time has or currently is or will come to salvation without hearing the gospel message by another human being. Let that sink in. This is one major point here. 
God has one mode of taking salvation through the world and proclaiming the salvation and bringing people into salvation. How shall they hear without a preacher? This is why. Like, think about it. This is like the whole impetus behind the modern missionary movement. As, as over the last number of hundred years, as we've uh, sociologists and, and we've discovered like just so many people groups out there who don't know Jesus and you know why is it why is it that people have left family and they've left their home culture and they've left the comforts of of their 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 their, their homeland to go to a place that is often hard and destitute to live and spend and remain the rest of their life. Why do they do that? It's not because they're sightseers. It's not because they're world travelers, but it's because millions of people have not heard the name of Jesus Christ. Like, why would men leave lucrative jobs to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to churches? And spend their entire life, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week with the people of God trying to motivate them and equip them for the work of ministry. What would cause somebody to do something so ridiculous? It's this truth right here. What would cause somebody to, to, to live the kind of life where they end up arrested and in bondage and they're taken and put into a cage uh, right over the top of a mosquito-infested swamp because they were preaching the gospel. And their feet are tied up, and then their feet are pulled up five feet above their head, and they spend months there. Can't, they can't swap the, uh, the mosquitoes off of their feet. And he did it because he was willing to take the gospel to a people who did not know. What would cause somebody to have that kind of gospel fervor? It's because people don't know Jesus. It's because people are lost and dying and going to hell and they don't even have a Bible written in their language. And that's still the case today. Three billion people, not non-Christians in the world, there's a lot more non-Christians than that, but three billion people don't even have access to the gospel. They don't have a Bible. They don't have a preacher. They don't have a church that they can access. There's nothing in the, they, have no, they don't know Christ. Three billion, that, that, that constitutes 7,000 people groups. Not including the billions of people who live in countries and cities all around the world just like ours that do have access to the gospel that don't know. They still don't know. They they, they're your neighbors and they still don't know that they need Jesus. They, they, they live across the street and they see us walk into this building every Sunday and they still don't know that they need Christ. What motivates us to sacrifice and to sow in seeds? It is this truth that they will not know unless they hear it. And they will not hear it unless somebody preaches to them. And we will not preach unless we are commissioned to go out into all of the world and preach 
the gospel. So, who has beautiful feet? Well, it's those who are sent. Okay, next question. Who are the sent ones then? In a, in a broad sense, or really, I guess you should say a specific sense, there is a corporate sending, like a commissioning of a church for a missionary or a pastor or a gospel worker to, to give up their life, to give up their job, to give up their comforts, and to go on mission. You know, and so I think of our church, we've sent out Jaden Gadson to the Philippines. We've sent out Luke Gibbons to France and others over the years. And so there's a, a corporate sense, but there's also a broader sense that I think really gets at the, 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 the passage even more so. And that is this, every Christian is sent. Because when Jesus was leaving this planet, he commissioned all of his disciples and he said, go into all of the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded and lo, I am behold, I, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we all are sent ones, amen? amen. Who are the sent? Who are the ones to have beautiful? It's you and me. It's you, every Sunday, as, as you come, every Sunday, the, the message is welcome, you're here because of the blood of Christ. And as you go, whether we say it verbally or not, the message is always the same. Go into all of the world and preach the gospel. Go make disciples. So therefore, listen to this, application. We should never divorce our personal evangelism from the local church. The Bible doesn't know anything of like Lone Ranger Christians who are out there doing their own thing and the church is a hindrance to them and the church slows me down and I got to really be on mission and that doesn't mean being part of a church. That concept makes no sense biblically. Evangelism is with the local church, through the local church. Why? Well, it's because it begins with being sent. The whole of the New Testament are local churches sending people on mission into the communities right around them and working together to see the lost saved or sending uh, uh, people to where there is no gospel presence to begin a new local church so that they might have a great commission focus. So when we think of, let me actually share an illustration that might help this. I read a story of a king who swore, he was so angry with his son, he swore that he would pick up this massive heavy stone and crush his son. You ever been there? You're not supposed to answer that. You don't have a son yet, that's why. And as soon as he put this out there, because of the whole culture and stuff in which he lived, he had to do it. And he immediately regretted it. So he's trying to think, how do I crush my son with this stone? And so a wise sage comes along and he says, I have an idea. Why don't you break the stone into a thousand, thousand pebbles? And then just throw all the pebbles at him. And it won't even hurt him. You see, a thousand pebbles does not do the damage of a heavy stone. A thousand pebbles doesn't have the same impact as if they were all together as one heavy stone. You see, why does God, has God designed it to where we come together? 
It's because we are a large, heavy stone doing damage to the kingdom of Satan. The, the, we can do more damage to the kingdom of darkness by coming together as opposed to a thousand pebbles all over the place not connected with each other. And so when we think about like all of their, our various aspects, like for example, one practical thing to do, share your personal evangelism connections with other people in the church. It's just that simple. Like so for example, I remember Mike Roach one day, he brought a guy that was a, a, a hustler on, on his corner at the time, he brought him over to meet me. And he introduced him to Stephanie. And then I was able to hire that guy to cut my grass. And what happens is this, we start bouncing people around. We start sharing the load. We start working together. And one seed, one person plants and another one harvests, and nobody's upset about that because it's to, to God gets the glory. You see what I'm saying? So we work together in our evangelism. Uh, even something like, you know, some of you have intentionally moved into the neighborhood, which I think is a great strategy. We don't require it, but it's a great strategy. Why? Well, it's the same concept. You know, if we can, if we can have like a, a heavy presence in the community around the church, we're going to be able to do da- uh, bigger damage to the kingdom of darkness. It makes sense, doesn't it? And so, so we're just trying to think of ways to evangelize together. Now, let me be clear though. This doesn't mean that evangelism is reduced to a church program. And that if the church isn't doing it, you're not to be part of it or you have to wait for Saturday morning evangelism or whatever. It doesn't mean that just because the church is doing a lot of evangelism that you're doing a lot of evangelism. Charles Spurgeon, he was talking about church members who love their churches and brag about their churches, but they don't do anything. He, he said this. He said, you go see them and you say, well, what is your church doing? And they say, well, bless God, we are doing a great deal. We have a Sunday school with so many children. Our minister preaches so many times and so many members have been added to the church. The sick are visited, the poor are relieved. And you stop them and say, well, friend, I'm glad to hear that you're doing so much. But what work is it that you take? Do you teach Sunday school? No. Do you preach in the street? No. Do you visit the sick? No. Do you assist in the discipline of the church? No. Do you contribute to the poor? No. Yet I thought you said you were doing so much. Stand out, sir. If you please, you are doing nothing at all. Look, when you come to church, the message is welcome. And when you leave our service, the message is go. Now go and be on mission. You see, where, where do we start with all of this? We think about the world. We think about the reality of gl- the need for global missions, which, by the way, at the end of this service, we're having a members meeting. We're going to vote on a budget, and a big portion of that budget is going to just give away to global missions. Like, we've got to, if, if we're not going, we are sending, right? Raising people up, sending money to support. But where do we start personally? You start, you start with the people that God has already put in your life. Like start in your own home. Don't be so focused about those out there that you overlook those in here. Start with people that attend this church. A number of my own personal evangelistic connections and opportunities to lead people to Christ 
have been people who have walked through those doors and came and started attending our church. Don't just assume that everybody's a Christian. Yeah. You know? This is right here. You got, a, yeah. you got people right around you. Start with your neighbors, those on the block, your neighborhoods, your barber, your coworkers, people at the gym. Where, you know, who are the people? And then you can talk about, like, how do we get creative and build more relationships, but let's just start with the people that God has already given us to steward. Amen? Amen. You see, it's easy to love humanity in general. It's very hard to love humans, like real-life, flesh-and-blood humans that God has you in relationships with. Love them. Begin with them. Moving on, we got to go faster here. To, to further ground his point, Paul turns back to Isaiah, and he offers a counter-argument in verse 16. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Why? Well, he, for Isaiah says, quoting Isaiah again, Lord, who has believed what he has not heard? And so the conclusion is sort of this summary statement in verse 17, which is the hinge between two parts of this passage. He uses this hinge to turn from the global need for missionaries and preachers and, and then also the local need for all of us to go, and he hinges it toward the fact that there are many Jews who have heard the gospel, yet they haven't believed. But before we get to that second part, the hinge is in verse 17. He says, so, summing it all up, faith comes from what? Somebody? Come on, you guys can talk to me. You're a little quiet this morning. Faith comes from, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. So what he's saying is, is this is how faith comes. We hear it, and what do we hear? We hear the word of Christ, the gospel message. So you can have beautiful feet because you are sent and because you can speak. The second part here I want to emphasize is that the gospel is to be shocking. Because the gospel's shocking, not all will believe. And it's meant to be shocking. So let's continue through. Paul turns from the globe now specifically to the Jews that he's been talking about in Romans chapter 9. And this question of what about the Jews who have rejected Christ in his day? So verse 18 he says, but, but I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have, for, he quotes Psalm 19.4, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the age. So he's saying, if faith comes by hearing, what's the deal? Haven't they heard? And he says, yeah, they have. The gospel has already gone to them. Okay, this seems to be going against what he just said. Faith comes by hearing, but they heard. All right, you get it? Verse 19, what's the problem? Well, did they not understand, he asks. Think of those around you, church. People that you have actually shared the gospel with, and they've heard the gospel, and they've rejected the gospel. Did they not hear? Well, yes, they heard. Did they not understand it? No, some of them understand they understand the gospel message in that they know the call. They know that they are to repent of their sins. They know that they're to turn to Christ. Yet they still do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, Paul gives two points. First, he says 
that the gospel is shocking insofar as it makes these Jews, in his case, jealous by going to the Gentiles. So there's a shocking nature here that God is intending to incite jealousy among his people. So look at verse 19. He continues. He says, so first Moses says, uh, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. He's quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where the people of God had presumed upon God's faithfulness and his, his, bene- his beautiful benefits and his, his blessings. And in Deuteronomy 32, the people are called fat and sleek. They're just comfortable in their sin. And they don't think that they need the grace of God. And so God is saying, I'm going to go to people that don't know me. People that haven't called on me. That's what he he goes on to say, uh, to quote Isaiah, in verse 20, I like the way he says it. He says, Isaiah is so bold to say, "Uh, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. See, this has been played out. God has gone from the original people group of Israel to the globe. I mean, think of Paul's own experience where Paul was not looking for Christ. And on that Damascus road, Christ's presence knocked Paul off his horse and blinded him and found him. And then it's been played out throughout 2,000 years. You know, every single conversion in some way is a Damascus Road experience. You know, it goes to the the, the people who live in Ephesus and they're happy in, in their sin. They're not seeking God and God finds them. He goes to the Gentiles that live in Corinth who are idolaters and adulterers and they are not asking for God and God shows Himself to them. And that's what God has done in our life today. I think of the song that we sang last week, that verse that's recently been added on Great is Thy Faithfulness. It says, it says I could not love Thee. So blind and unfeeling. The covenant promises fell not to me. And then... Without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. Great is thy faithfulness. You see, the gospel is shocking in that it goes to people that aren't looking for it. And so how are we motivated in our evangelism? Well, we're motivated in that the gospel is to be preached, and the gospel is intentionally shocking. Take that shock and awe with you. But the third piece, as we uh, begin to conclude this passage, is this, is that the gospel is to be obeyed. Notice I didn't say believed. It is to be believed. But I didn't use the word believed. I said the gospel is to be obeyed. The the other uh, side of these verses that we just read like on one hand, it's great hope for those that are not seeking God. The other side is this reality that there are those people 
who have heard, they have understood, they don't, they're, they're taking advantage of God's grace, they don't believe they need God's mercy, and, and they are disobedient to God. They are stubborn. You guys know the story of the prodigal son? Man has his inheritance, he's got two boys. The younger son, what does he do? He cashes out, right? And he, he takes all of his money and he squanders it with his sinful lifestyle. And, and when he's broke, he ends up sitting with the pigs. And he's so broke and he's so hungry, he's looking at the pig food and he's like, oh man, like that looks kind of delicious. And, that, and, and it hits, like I would be better off being a slave at my father's house than to be sitting here eating the food of the swine. And so the, the young son decides to take that humiliating, shameful walk home. And in this culture, he would never be restored as a son. He may have been permitted to live in the home as a slave, but not as a son. And what a turn of events when he steps onto his road and he sees his father waiting, looking for him. After all this time, he's still there. And he, the, the younger son, stops probably out of fear. And the father tucks his robe in and begins to sprint toward his son. Wraps him around, kisses him on the neck. Such a beautiful picture of restoration. He's found by those who did not seek him. He has shown himself to those who did not ask for him. But there's another character in the prodigal son's story that we so often overlook. And that's the older son. The older brother. The older brother who has stayed home. The older brother who has done everything right. The older brother who has been obedient. The older brother who, who never took advantage of uh, his inheritance. And he's just been faithful along the way. He's there. He, he deserves sonship in his mind. He deserves to be in the home. And the older brother leaves the banquet for his son, the prodigal who returned. He leaves the celebration out of anger. Why? Why? You see, the older brother, the older brother in this case here is Israel who doesn't believe they need the grace of God. The Jews of there, they, they don't believe they need it. They, they deserve it. They are the people of the covenant. And for our day today, it is anybody who is self-righteous and religious who believes that they are beyond the need of grace that another person needs. How can God save him? How can God, like, does God know how he's hurt me? Does God know what he's done? It's not fair that I've been sacrificing my whole life and I'm, I'm faithful and, and this person who, who's squandered grace has now returned and given such, such a warm welcome and is brought right back into the standing as a son of God. How can this be? And they're angry. And they leave the banquet out of anger, out of jealousy. Check it out. 
the older brother in the prodigal son story, the older brother also has the opportunity to repent. And I'm going to read from you, uh, to you from Luke 15, 7. tells us what happens next after the older brother leaves the banquet. The father goes after him. And it says the older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Look at verse 21 in our text. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He is pleading with the older brother to come home, to come back in. You see, friends, his hands are outstretched to those out there, and his hands are outstretched to those in here. Turn back to Christ. Turn back to Christ. Run back to your first love. Come back to the banquet hall. Do not judge God for His mercy. Don't question God for His grace shown to others. You see, saints, we can only go if we are a gospelized people in here. So when we connect verse 16 with verse 21, verse 16 says, they have not obeyed the gospel. You see, we get to verse 21 and he says that they are, I'm pleading with them, but they are a disobedient and contrary people. Here's the point. Believing the gospel is an issue of obedience. Uh, wrap your mind around that. It's not optional. Believing the gospel, turning from your sins and trusting in Christ, for those of us now, to, you must turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And as we go out there and we, and we take the gospel, see, this is our problem, is we often think that, you know, this is our truth, but this isn't their truth. You know, as I'm thinking about my, my non-Christian friends, like, I don't know if I can really, I mean, I believe the Bible, but they don't. It's not binding on them, it's binding on me. And what I'm saying is, is no, it is their truth that they are disobeying. It is their truth. And so as we are presenting the gospel, we don't present it as an option. We are commanded to believe. And we present with that kind of pleading. Look, if a Christian goes out and shares the gospel with somebody and they never get to the point where they call that man or woman to, to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ and to trust in Jesus Christ, then they haven't yet preached the gospel. We go with this kind of passion, this kind of urgency, and we let them see Christ who is patient. Christ who is pleading with them. Christ who is commanding them to believe. Amen? Amen. Can we have beautiful feet, church? Yes. Can we? That wasn't a rhetorical question. Look at Paul's feet. Think of the Apostle Paul who wrote this. Look at his feet. Look at Paul's feet. They, they were probably swollen every night from his, his journeys. Paul walked 10,000 miles on foot to take the gospel to those who did not know. That is like walking from New York City to Los Angeles four times. 
What did his feet look like? Paul was beaten with rods three times. Paul was stoned once. Paul was shipwrecked once. Paul was, 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 was left hungry and went days thirsty. Many times Paul was left in the cold, in a cold cell, naked, suffering, because he wanted the world to know Christ. For the glory of Christ and for the sake of the lost, Paul's feet were probably scarred and marred by the shackles that were so often wrapped around them. Look at Paul's feet. Ugly physically. Beautiful spiritually. Do you know the scars of beautiful feet, church? Do you know what it's like to sow seeds and tears, to, to, to share the gospel through pain and suffering? Why do we do it? Why did Paul do it? You see, so many of our church members are faithful. I, 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 I engage with you guys enough to know that you, so many of you are sacrificing so much for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes your popularity, sometimes your, your job could be uh, 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 on, on the line. Sometimes your friendships are on the line. Uh, sometimes you're just giving up nights for the sake of the, the building of God's church and weekends and your, your, your sacrifice. I, I often, with our members, when I know they're sacrificing, I have a kind of a, a, a running joke in my own head. And it's not really a joke, it's kind of true. But I often tell them, like, well, you got a crown waiting for you. You know, just look forward to that crown. I just told somebody this morning, Jesus is right now making a crown for you. <laughs> when we get to heaven, what do we do with those crowns? We throw them at the feet of Christ. See, why do we do it? We do it for the reward. But the reward is not something that we get for ourselves. The reward is Christ himself. Think of heaven. Think of that day when you, you are standing in eternity and you see Jesus in all of his glory who lived every moment of his life in righteousness in those feet. Whose feet took the nails on the tree so that we might be saved. And when he rose, he walked out on those feet. He walked out of the tomb and continued to minister to his people and train them for 40 days before he ascended into heaven where he now sits and reigns at the right hand of God and serves us. And now in heaven, in eternity, there he stands in all of his glory. Church, what love will be exchanged between us and Christ on that day? And he gives us the reward and we have a crown on our head and we look at his feet and we take off the crown and we throw them at his feet. It doesn't matter how much suffering you went through in this life at that moment. It doesn't matter how much you gave up. When you see Christ in his glory and you see his feet and the nail scars are still there, his feet eternally marred by our sin. 
The wounds of redemption will never leave his body because the wounds of, the re- of redemption are why we're there. And we see his feet. We worship him. We throw our crowns. And for 10,000 years, we're throwing our crowns at his feet, praising the lamb who was slain. Church, his feet are beautiful. Nobody sacrificed like Jesus. Amen? Nobody loved like Christ. Amen? Nobody has more beautiful feet than our Savior. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons of God. Praise Him. Praise Him for those feet that carried the gospel to us. Praise Him for those feet that took the nails so that we might be saved. What beautiful beautiful feet. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the call that you've given us, the mission that you've given us to go and take the gospel to the lost. Let us be faithful. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.